Good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening, as you prefer, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Today, we're going to set the stage for our discussion of freedom through the lens of political philosophy. In this and in the next quite a few episodes, we're going to look at the folks that I consider to be the foundational players in this arena, the thinkers whose innovations and whose mistakes define our most uh, basic assumptions. You, you might call them our intellectual instincts about the nature of freedom. And now you'll recall, as we ran through our series on the philosophy of mind, sort of attempting to create a basic theory of free will in the individual, we ended up saying, in summary, that all of these human faculties of mind, you know, self and free will and consciousness and all these other kind of big dollar sign ideas of philosophy, that they are all largely, basically, shaped by the way that these ideas have been discussed and written about and thought about and discussed again and debated century upon century upon century in the traditions that most directly influence us. So, for example, for those of us in the European and, Ameri and American intellectual lineage, we want to pay a lot of attention to these folks that we're going to be reviewing in this series. You know, that includes Mill and Locke and Hobbes, Rousseau, Hegel, and a number of others. We want to pay attention to these folks because whether we agree with them or not, whether we like them or not, whether we think uh, they're the best thing ever, I should say, even if we have, have never read them, never had any direct exposure to them, still... These folks are at work down there at the foundation of the way we think about all of these ideas. Again, whether we know it or not, whether we've consciously considered them or not, they're there and they're, they're having a pretty tremendous influence on us. So as we hear from these folks, even when we find that their message may, may seem extremely dated at this point, certainly as we go back into the 1600s, we're going we're gonna to find that this does not translate directly to our current day-to-day -day experience. Still, I think we can agree that they really do have a profound influence on us, again, whether we've read them, whether we've been exposed to them before or not. To begin, a few quotes that I think most of us have heard previously. And the first is from, well, it, it kind of depends on who you ask uh, or how exactly you phrase the Google search. But this quote is attributed to most every English-speaking prominent person between about 1880 and 1920, but it's most commonly attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court from 1902 to 1932. The quote, and again, I'm pretty sure you've heard it, the quote is, Your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Unquote. Now, here's another, and uh, also originally, and in this case, confirmably from Justice Holmes. Quote, The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. Unquote. Now, that latter was from Schenck's from the, uh, versus the United States in 1919, which was about the enforcement of the Espionage Act of 1917 during World War I. The question was whether or not it was legal to hand out flyers to draft-age men urging resistance to the draft and, therefore, to the war as a whole. On the one hand, obstructing the federal draft, of course, that's a crime. Then, on the other hand, a leaflet isn't an outstretched gun. A leaflet is speech, and, therefore, it is protected. In this case, the court decided that free speech, First Amendment rights, 
did not excuse a criminal offense. The quote and the opinion overall were Holmes's attempt to explain how speech that was intended to result in a crime and posed a clear and present danger of succeeding should be punished by law, just like any other actual tangible criminal act. You can't knowingly and falsely yell fire in a crowded theater. The only possible way to construe that act is one intended to illegally cause harm. The specific ruling was later partially overturned in 1969 by Brandon Verve, Ohio, but you know that, that is leading us uh, way too far astray for the moment. But uh, actually, a, a funny story. So when I was a kid, I, I was profoundly literal about absolutely everything. I took everything exactly as written with very little room for any kind of interpretive flexibility that you know I kind of assume for most people, that kind of comes as second nature. Now, some would say that this tendency in me persists to this day, but, you know, we can leave that to the side for the time being. Anyway, when I was a kid, I heard someone say the shorthand version of this quote, of, of this kind of aphorism, and many of you have probably heard this as well. So, quote, it goes roughly, quote, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, unquote. Now, in my defense, that, that's a really poor summation of the central idea, right? But, but it's common nonetheless, and because the actual quote, or at least the idea behind it is so common, we kind of get let people get away with this uh, you know, pretty silly uh, abbreviation of the real quote. In any event, in my rather profound literalism, I was convinced that you could, could not yell fire in a crowded theater even if there was an actual fire. So every time, you know, you can kind of imagine, every time I'm going to the movies, I'm, I'm half watching out for smoke because, you know, of course, if there's a fire, it's not like anyone's going to tell me. I'm, I'm kind of going to be on my own to figure this out. It's everyone on their own. It's whoever notices the fire is going to be the person that gets to leave because you're not even allowed to mention it, even if it's there. Um, because, you know, again, there's, there will be no yelling fire in a crowded theater, even if there is already a fire in the crowded theater, which all this is, is pretty far outside of our purview. But so, you know, maybe we can get back to our original business here. My purpose in raising these quotes is that both of them, to me, represent a sort of folk wisdom by which we set the limits and kind of the navigation posts for our notions of legal freedom. They've become like uh, sort of quasi-legal proverbs that we use to either guide or to justify our decision-making. There are others, of course, but rather than continue to sort of uh, plant roadsides in an empty field, what I'd like to do over the course of the next few episodes is go back to the, the real roots of our modern conceptions of political freedom and really try to understand the mechanism of some of these most basic assumptions. And the fundamental idea in the case of both of these quotes is that the borderline of freedom for myself is harm to others. So fine, swing your fist as much as you'd like in an empty room, you know, if, if, if that's kind of how you get your kicks, but you have to stop doing it in spaces that are already taken up by my nose. You can speak your mind, of course, absolutely, it, until... What you're saying is both false and interferes with the law and the public good, i.e. until it starts causing harm. Um, 
And, you know, uh, golly, if this one isn't just a little bit murkier, right? But, you know, hold on tight. We're going we're gonna to get back to that one. Now, naturally, for both of these, for even the really simple notion of swinging your fist and, and not hitting my nose, hopefully, um, the devil is in very much in the details of these things. And we're going to get into all of that. But if we want some good bedrock libertarian fortune cookie stuff here, you can't get much better than these two quotes to kind of encapsulate some of the more basic assumptions that we, particularly we as Americans, have about the nature of law and what limits personal freedom versus, you might call it more broadly, the, the public good. But let's set that aside and get down to our philosophical cases, shall we? So we're going to start with a couple folks that, that I know you've likely heard of. Uh, John Locke, we're going to talk about him in a few episodes, uh, and John Stuart Mill, who I'm sure you've heard of as well. Now, we're not going to do a comprehensive review of their philosophy, but rather we want to set them up as, as sort of our foundational pieces here, the cornerstones on which the edifice of our current thinking around social and legal freedom is based. In some cases, we're going to stay pretty close to the actual text, and in others, we might drift a bit and see how some of these ideas that were, of course, developed in many cases centuries ago, how they fit or how they fail to fit into our current thinking and into the current realities of our lives. When you read these guys and others in this tradition who we might not talk about, there's this weird mix of comfort and unfamiliarity. Now, some of these ideas seem so obvious as to be quote-unquote common sense, while others seem entirely foreign. And it's created some lingering conflicts, as I think we're going to see. Some ideas that we call, again, quote-unquote common sense, which in my mind, typically common sense means something that we want to say is true, but we, we really don't want to have to take the time or the mental energy to explain why we think it's true, so we call it common sense. But, you know, maybe that's, that's not your view, and certainly that's a, that is a, a complete diversion from our conversation. So setting that aside, some of these ideas that we call common sense, they end up not making that much sense at all if you kind of start to press on them and then pull them apart from a, a philosophical perspective. And some of these we might even call actively dangerous. Whereas other ideas that at first seem entirely abstract and kind of strange and foreign, I think we'll come to see that actually in the real world, in our day-to-day -day lives, these ideas play out quite well and are actually essential to us and essential to the way we, we go about our business on a day-to-day -day basis. So one last caveat before we begin. We've just finished our series on free will, as I mentioned, and as, as I'm sure uh, many of you have heard in our first season. And that's, of course, all about how the individual human agent is capable of making free choices. You will recall, if you listen to that series, that the idea of freedom in that discussion was closely tied up with some other ideas. In the case of individual free will, it's that relationship to consciousness that is, is most important. Um, but there were other ideas as well, ideas of selfhood, ideas of intentionality, all of which have to sort of be tied together and cross-explained, if you will, if we're going to understand any of them at all. So now as we move into what we're going to call a more political, social uh, realm of philosophy, we'll find that the idea of freedom is similarly tied up with other related notions. 
in this case, the, the, mo the two most important related notions are reason and responsibility. It's kind of a, a three-part process that we're going to see here between reason, meaning the tool or the process or the faculty that we used to make our choices in the first place, that we use to guide the way we use this capacity for free will before we actually start going out and using it, uh, to speak kind of roughly and abstractly about the whole thing. So step one is reason, uh, where we develop our choices. Step two is our actual capacity for free will, where we go out and make those choices real in the world. And then, of course, the third step, and, and this is the step that I, I know, but believe me, I personally would love to get rid of this step, but alas, there it is. It's, it's always there. If you want a good working notion of freedom, you also have to have a good working notion of responsibility, of accountability. Without that, if it's all just quote-unquote reason and then doing whatever your reason tells you to, and then you're right back to the point of making decisions again without any of that kind of potentially negative feedback that comes from responsibility and accountability, well, you know, go figure, the ideas just don't work all that well. So as we look to our friends, uh, Locke and Mill and others, for these thinkers, we're going to see that this capacity for reason really is the foundation upon which free will is built. And then, of course, responsibility in turn is the immediate consequence of free will. It's how, it's how we kind of learn, was our reasoning process sound? Did we factor all the right things uh, into our choice-making capacity before we went out and acted or spoke or did whatever else we did with our free will? Or were we kind of missing some pieces? Do we have to, uh, as it were, improve our capacity for reasoning before we go back out and start making choices again? So without either of these two other ideas, reason and responsibility, we really can't make sense of freedom and free will in the political and social sphere. Of course, I think that that's pretty clear for most folks, but we will be talking about it lots and lots more as we move forward. So as I said, we're going to start with Mill. There's something about Mill that he's both the most relatable and at times the most relevant uh, thinker to many of our current considerations and concerns. Now, Mill wrote in the 19th century. He was born in 1806, and most of his major works came out in, say, the, the middle part of the 1800s. Mill came out of, of what was called the utilitarian school of philosophy, which in turn was founded by Jeremy Bentham, who was a buddy of Mill's father. Uh, but as has kind of been our tradition here on this show and as will continue to be, I'm not going to dig as deeply into this notion of schools of thought and how we classify different thinkers and all that kind of good stuff. It's very important, I think, if you're going to do a rigorous scholarly study of, of these folks and you're going to really try and understand this history we're trying to understand things on, on a somewhat different level, not with that same level of academic depth and rigor that, you know, say taking an entire semester long course on these thinkers would, 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 would you earn you. So I hope folks are not put off by that, but a lot of this conversation that many philosophers would really be thinking a lot about is which school does this person belong to? What is the tradition of thought? Who influenced who? We're going to set those things aside and really focus more on the direct ideas that, that come through in these traditions. But in any event, uh, it will set that aside for the moment as well. Importantly, uh, Mill was also what we would call a part-time philosopher, and this is actually going to come to be extremely important as we move forward in this series. 
he wrote as a side gig while working his day job with uh, a company called the British East India Company. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into the history of uh, colonial imperialist, quote unquote, companies. Uh, the, the Dutch and the English East India companies are, are I believe, the, the two largest and certainly the two most well known. But suffice to say, for our purposes right now, in this limited definition that we'll get into a, at a little bit greater length later on, suffice to say that these companies were the sort of economic arm of their country's colonial and imperialistic policies uh, and their colonial government offices and the bureaucratic and the often military uh, efforts that were going on in the name of colonialism and imperialism. This, these companies were the purely economic side of all this. So, for example... Britain occupied India as a colony. Uh, they occupied it politically and militarily from a sort of uh, from a political power standpoint. But it was the East India Company that then facilitated the tremendous flow of, <laughs> for lack of a better word, we can call it the flow of quote unquote trade between England and and, and India. Um, you know, England who wanted certain products that were much more easily acquired in India than elsewhere. And of course, England who wanted those products very, very cheaply. And then on the other side of this quote unquote ex process of exchange and this trade process was India who had little or no control over the rates of exchange between the stuff that they were forced to buy from England and the stuff that they were forced to sell from England, which maybe has a little bit of a different connotation than what we typically think of when we talk about quote-unquote trade. But, you know, again, we're going to talk about all this stuff at, at much greater length as we go through this series. So the East India Company was there to ensure that colonization broadened Britain's economic trade with the world. The division between the government's role in colonization, which again was about the military presence and it was about setting up a, uh, a bureaucratic presence, a, a certain sort of pseudo-government pseudo that operated in these colonies. The division between the government's role and the role of a private firm to manage trade and economic factors was considered essential. And we're going to have the opportunity again to talk about colonialism and imperialism and I, I guess you would roughly say that imperialism was sort of a new, more modern refinement of colonialism that uh, sort of started to crop up toward the middle and end of the 19th century. Uh, anyway, we're, we're going to talk about all of that at much, much greater length. But suffice to say for now that what the British East India was was sort of the business end, if you'll excuse the phrase, of the British colonial presence there to ensure that the government rep representation in the colonies, you know, that the government folks weren't, weren't mucking around in free trade, where, of course, you know, uh, they certainly did not belong. Because, you know, after all, just think about this here, you know, uh, just because you're occupying a foreign territory by force and using your military supremacy to dictate the exchange of goods, well, none of that is any reason, none of that is any excuse to tamper with the freedom of the marketplace, of course, right? In any event, it's not the purview of this episode to get deep into that history or the related economies of the, the, of the colonies. For now, suffice to say that Mill's profession will be a factor that we're going to want to keep in mind as we read and, and hear about his philosophy. But that's enough introducing. Let's hear from Mill in the introduction to his work, on liberty, in which he begins by defining the circumstances in which it is reasonable for power to be exerted 
by one human being over another. So this means what he's really starting with is um, when is it rational, when is it reasonable, when is it justifiable for a person's freedom to be denied to them, either by the force of law or by, you know, really significant social coercion so that we really are so that um, one or more people in whatever form of institution are really forcing another person to behave in a certain way or at least to stop behaving in a certain way. So here he goes, quote, The object of this essay is to assert one very simple principle. As entitled to govern absolutely the dealings of society with the individual, in the way of compulsion and control, whether the means used be physical force in the form of legal penalties or the moral coercion of public opinion. Unquote. So just to pause for a minute as we sort of begin to acclimate ourselves to Mill's use of language, to put this very simply, Mill is telling us that this essay is about when it is appropriate to exert actual control over another human being when we can compel them by law or by force to behave differently than they would choose to if they were left completely to their own devices. Which is actually not at all just what this essay is about. He, he goes much further afield than that, much broader, much deeper. But for now, you know, this is, this is kind of his introduction, is considering the crux of this idea. Um, and it certainly is a very instructive starting point, right, to almost try and define freedom uh, in its negative space. What, when are we justified in removing freedom? Maybe that will begin to tell us about the boundaries of freedom, and then how do we define what it essentially is. Uh, I, I digress. Let's get back to Mill here, continuing with the quote. That principle is that the sole end for which mankind are warranted, either individually or collectively, in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. He cannot rightfully be compelled to do or to forbear because it would be better for him to do so, because it would make him happier, because, in the opinion of others, to do so would be wise or even right. These are good reasons for remonstrating with him, or reasoning with him, or persuading him, or entreating him, but not for compelling him, or visiting him with any evil in case he do otherwise. To justify that, the conduct from which it is desired to deter him must be calculated to produce evil in someone else. The only part of the conduct of anyone for which he is amenable to society is that which concerns others. In the part which merely concerns himself, his independence is, of right, absolute. Over himself, over his body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Unquote. Now this, to me, is a good summary of what is typically presumed in what I would think of as American libertarianism. To put it more directly, if certainly not so eloquently, can't we boil everything down to, you don't harm me, 
I don't harm you, and then the rest is nobody's business, right? Now, if we want to put that differently in the context of our show, we could say that one ought to be free up to and until they're doing harm to someone else. Again, you know, that goes back to this quote, swing your fist to your heart's content right up until you get to my nose. So let's hear a chunk of that quote again that I really want to highlight. Quote, the sole end for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. Unquote. Now, if I were going to be a bit of a stickler, I'd point out that there's a slight difference between these two statements. One suggests a, a truly libertarian uh, scenario wherein I can only protect myself. Again, the, the quote is, um, the only warrant in interfering with the liberty of action of another is self-protection. So that's the first half of the quote, um, where I'm really worried about protecting myself, my interests. Whereas the second, uh, this notion of the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of a civilized community is to prevent harm to others, well, that's a, a little bit more genuine, right? That's a little bit more broad. You know, on the one hand, again, we, we have pure self-protection, suggesting a kind of um, immediate response to another person's actions. And it, of course, also suggests that I am working to protect and, and to ensure my own rights, my own freedom. Now, all of that could happen in any context, um, most notably, of course, in a, in a context without any civil society whatsoever. And, and yes, as, as I raise that, um, uh, uh, Professor Hobbs, yes, I do see your hand up and we are absolutely going to get to you. Uh, but, you know, threatening me with a state of war isn't going to make it happen any faster. So you just need to sort of wait your turn here. But anyway, um, sorry for the interruption there, but continuing with our, our strain of thought here. Preventing harm to others, preventing harm to others, by contrast, as a society. Now, this is different territory. At least in my opinion, there's a distinction that we want to look at here. Particularly if we mean prevent in a, in a kind of non-immediate sense, right? Where, where I'm putting structures in place to ensure the safety of the larger group, even when there isn't an immediate threat, but I know that by putting these things in place, perhaps I'm preventing a threat that could conceivably come our way in the future. Whenever we have collective community concerns being met with collective community planning and action, well, suffice to say, you know, that, that word collective, whenever we get into that, we're in a far more complex territory you know, that at least is going to presage some notion of civil society, some of the institutions of civil society. And it typically suggests that there probably already is one in place. So if we can think for a moment in terms of, you know, Westerns, good old American movie Westerns, good old movies, because really, I mean, what better context in which to talk about uh, libertarian contemplations, right? I mean, it's just, it's just the perfect, you know, this is libertarian cinema, if ever there was such a thing. Um, so... If I'm just thinking about protecting myself, and that's the, the premise of my Western, well, that, that could just mean me on a rocking chair uh, on the porch with a shotgun, right? That, that could be the limit of, it, of what it means to protect myself. 
Whereas collective protection, collective prevention of harm, that at least is going to, you know, require a gathering in the town square where we give her, get everybody together and agree on a sort of common course of action. And it probably also means, you know, putting someone who's totally ill-suited to the task up on top of a building with a shotgun and they're ducking and they're, they're shooting. And it's, it's probably going to be a little, a lighthearted moment in the midst of this, uh, of this big gunfight that we're going to have that somehow, you know, freedom and gunfights uh, certainly must go hand in hand, at least in Westerns, but I, once again, I'm a little bit off the trail here. So something like a civil society, if we have anything like a civil society at all, it typically entails a bit more complexity than simply saying, you know, we're just going to prevent harm. It requires that many of these terms, like harm, be more precisely defined, first of all. That's one of our first steps in kind of establishing a, a working civil society. So if harm is the lever by which we are justified in denying someone their freedom, with a large enough group of people, probably we really shouldn't ensure that we all have the same idea in mind, right, when we consider this notion of what harm even is. So let's take a moment. Let's do that, okay? And let's think about this notion of harm. Let's think about what it means, and let's think about what a, a kind of common definition might consist of. And we'll do some kind of silly thought experiments here to get that done. And, and I should say, as we move forward, we're going to find that Mill has a lot of, of interesting things to say on the more positive side of freedom, not just, you know, under what circumstances is it justifiable to deny it. Um, you know, he, he thinks a lot about what, obviously, what, what is freedom? How do we use it? What is its potential? What, is its, what does it do for a society that a society becomes free? How does it help us as individuals and as a, a collective group to, to grow and progress? He thinks about all these things, and, he, and, and his thoughts on that are very, very interesting. But for now, we're going to keep spending some time on this subject, uh, uh, really, of when it is justifiable to have an absence of freedom, and when it's not, not only justifiable, but necessary to limit freedom. So, again, we're going to talk about harm, what constitutes harm, what constitutes harm on the level that justifies denying someone their freedom. So... Surely there are some simple examples here, you know, actual physical harm. So, for example, you actually either punch me in the face or at least you, you try to. Well, that's not good, right? Just in the abstract, if that's all the, the information we have, probably we know that's not an acceptable situation. So in that case, your freedom must be limited. You know, the days of trying to remonstrate with you, those days are long over and it's now time to compel and of course, we can fit yelling in a crowded theater, of course, when there is not a fire. Uh, we can fit yelling fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire under the same heading. You know, harm will ensue. No other purpose is met by this action. If we want to go to more extreme versions of harm, well, of course, you know, they're all going to be far less pleasant to imagine. But, you know, for these kinds of very tangible examples... They are at least uh, comparatively simple to consider from a philosophical standpoint. But the gray area comes up when we go in the other direction, right? When the instances of what might be considered harm are actually comparatively minor and open to interpretation. How much harm must I sustain or how much harm must I be at risk of or be threatened with before society starts compelling you to 
you know, cut it out, to stop doing whatever you're doing. It is that's put me in mind that I'm somehow at risk of being harmed. Let's take the following, you know, simple bordering on silly examples and see where they take us. So, for example, here's thought experiment number one. We pass each other on the street and you call me a jerk. Okay, well, so far, that's not really big, big time, capital H harm, right? It's not a terribly nice thing to do, I would say. And of course, I'd prefer that you offer some more constructive criticism, but none of that elevates this to the level of real harm. And thus far, no one really has any, any reason to compel you to stop. Now, I might argue that you've done me real harm and that I'm justified in asking law enforcement or whoever else to stop you from doing that again. You know, or, or maybe I could sue you. Uh, but neither of these two moves is going to get me very far, presumably, if all you've done is call me the, a jerk this one time on the street with no other kind of threatening or damaging activity in play. But now, what if you do this every day? Every time you see me as I'm walking to my office? What if you get really close when you do it? And, and what if I regard your actions as genuinely threatening in a way that, you know, other people walking by see this and they're like, wow, what, what is, what's going on here? Why are these people, you know, so intent upon menacing Corey? What is with all this anger? When we get to that level where we feel like there's, there's repetition and there's a more genuine, more tangible sense of threat involved, well, of course, that's operating on a, on a new level. But as always, the devil is you know, still going to be in the details here, right? And once again, I'll need to appeal to a higher authority and plead my case. If I really want something done about this, if I think it is now justifiable to compel you to cease this behavior, I'm going to need to go to some kind of higher authority, plead my case. Presumably, uh, you are going to do the same. So I'll give my reasons, I'll explain what harm I believe has been done to me, and you'll explain either your reasons for doing what you're doing that make it somehow justifiable, or if your reasons don't matter that much, you, you'll just explain that yeah, maybe you haven't been acting pleasantly, but nonetheless, you're still acting well within your rights, and that no real harm has actually been done. Now, at the risk of really excessive drilling down here, let's flesh out these, uh, uh, these assumptions that we're probably all making at, the, at, at this scenario. The first assumption that I assume we're all making is that our two disputants in this case both have roughly equal power in the society that they're operating in. So we can assume in this hypothetical, if you're calling me a jerk on the street, um, that you and I are both citizens in more or less the same standing. Now, if you're the son of the chief of police or you're the son of a judge, uh, perhaps you're acting with a degree of confidence knowing that the outcome of any kind of legal dispute will eventually turn your way. You have a level of real power that, my, that makes my perspective in all this somewhat moot. It's no longer about a simple equation of is it harm or isn't it harm. There's another factor. There's another, another impulse putting some pressure on the scales and changing the equation that we're working with here, right? Of course, there are all kinds of reasons why you or I might have, uh, might have more or less power in any given society. And while we'd mostly agree that none of these are actually fair 
right? You know, none of this is, none of this should be important in this kind of legal dispute, um, in this question of whether or not my rights are being infringed upon or whether or not your rights uh, need to be impeded so that you stop doing these things that we all judge are wrong. If that's the fundamental question, I think we all agree in the abstract that all these other issues of of sort of social power and uh, whether it's related to money, whether it's related to who we're, we're related to, whether it's related to the color of our skin, we all agree in the abstract. It shouldn't be that way. And yet I think most of us agree in the abstract that it absolutely is that way. Now, as we go forward, we're going to talk a lot more about power differentials uh, in the next episode. And, and then actually just, yeah, I think continually, we're going to keep coming back to this idea. But for now, obviously, the fact that one person almost always has more real power than another, or one group has more real power than another group, um, that has had a profound effect on the reality and the history of our, our political freedom in this country. And in, I mean, it's, I, I can't imagine any scenario in, our, in world history where this has not had some sway uh, over the way freedom is considered in, in the day-to-day -day in a society. But one problem with power differentials, and you know, we, can, we can certainly say that this is probably the least important problem with power differentials in, in the real world, but um, here in the not real world, in our podcast about uh, uh, philosophy and other ideas, this is a, it's a pretty important problem uh, for our very narrow purposes. The problem with power differentials is that they're most often irrational, meaning from the perspective of a philosophical system, it shouldn't matter whose daughter you are or son I am, but of course it does. Now, philosophy really doesn't like this. It would make the task of philosophical contemplation much easier if everything conformed to a nice, simple, uh, equal set of principles. The fact that reality is always far murkier and far more complex than any given series of aphorisms I use to attempt to define define it, well, that's that's a profound inconvenience, which we will come back to and actually does play in the rest of this conversation, but you know, for now I digress. What we are equipped to discuss at this point is an assumption that underlines all of this, that you and I are both fundamentally rational and able to explain our perspectives as such. Now, I gotta admit, this might sound like telling an aspiring Olympic swimmer that they should be training in the water. You know, it's, it's almost too obvious, right? It's so obvious we don't usually even think about it. But I think we'll see it as both an important and a much more uncertain factor than we typically often consider. For now, and, and again, we're, we're going to spend a lot more time on all of these points, but for now, just consider what happens when you are found to be wrong in this kind of dispute, in this very minor, low-level dispute. This is not, you know, we're on trial for our lives. This is not about uh, murder or, or sort of high-level crimes. Just this minor kind of dispute between two people in the world. In line with the severity of this dispute, again, if we're just talking about you're calling me a jerk on the street, that level of severity is, is, is pretty low, of course. In line with the severity of the dispute, one or the other of us will essentially have our rational perspective in this issue, in this situation, accepted 
and one of us will have our rational perspective dismissed. Now, again, this might be, in this situation, this might be as simple as being told that you're wrong. You know, you're, you're wrong in this situation. You either have to stop uh, having a certain behavior uh, or, you know, if we flip the, switch, the, flip the script a little bit, maybe you have to learn to put up with someone else's behavior. But the system in question has no real further room for considering your perspective on the issue either way. You're being told that your argument in this, your argument that you have a right to call me a jerk, or on the flip side, my argument that I don't want to be called a jerk anymore and I have a right to have you stop. Either way, someone's rational perspective is being dismissed, at least to some extent. In a more extreme case, Again, you know, if we say the harm, uh, the crime in question is something like murder, well, in that case, if found guilty, you're presumably going to have your capacity for free and rational choosing removed from you uh, to a very large extent and perhaps for a fairly long period of time. So we see reason here operating in a few different ways. First, in this dispute, we both, we both of us, the, the two of us, we both state our case. We provide our perspectives on the event. We attempt to sway others to our own rational point of view. Even if the event itself is not rational, perhaps your explanation of it can be. Now, next, of course, is the process of considering how the event will be judged on the precedent of law and similar circumstances that have arisen in the past. And again, that is another rational process, right? It's a rational process of comparing a given reality to any number of precedences and formal codes that we have on the books and trying to figure out how we can align those things in such a way that we take a, a, a rational conclusion from the situation. Now, finally, again, there are going to be consequences for one or perhaps for both of us. Either my rational perspective will be dismissed or it will be accepted. If it is accepted, there's a chance that your capacity to make certain kinds of choices will be removed from you. Now, all of this may seem extremely rudimentary, and, and it, it most certainly is. But I think it's important to contextualize these systems and these processes in a way that I think can help us as we look forward, start to see how this makes sense in a larger context as we move forward thinking about these same questions. So... Those are the possible after effects of these kinds of disputes. And of course, it, it might not come to that, right? We've all seen the movie scene where the cops are called because there's a fight. And instead of locking up, uh, locking someone up, the, the cop says, you know, she says, can't you both just be reasonable? Because of course, if we're both reasonable, right? If we act according to reason, uh, then then we we both of us have every right to continue along with uh, on our way, and presumably that will cause this whatever behavior, whatever dispute it was that brought the police uh, woman there in the first place. This, if we just both act rationally, well, that will cause that issue to go away. If we are both reasonable, again, so goes the trope. Then an ongoing dispute is almost impossible, right? It, it's, it's presumed to a very large extent that irrationality, that the irrationality of one or the other of us is what caused this dispute in the first place. Criminality, certainly what we would call petty crimes, quote-unquote petty crimes, or crimes of passion, these are all characterized by a lack of objectivity, a lack of self-control, a lack of logic or perspective, 
in essence, these are basically these kinds of crimes, these petty or uh, uh, crimes of passion or petty crimes. These are basically irrational acts in most every important way that we want to examine them. Even a more calculated crime, say, for example, the embezzlement uh, or even a, a very well-planned robbery. Um, these crimes suffer from a failure to consider a perspective broader than our own, right? To turn the reason of civil society against itself for your own ends. So if I say, well, you know, it's, I'm going to prioritize my own principles, my desire for the money in that bank over the general principles of society. Well, there are a lot of moral philosophers that will tell you that that's that's can be described as simply making a kind of a rational mistake where you have failed to properly account for the value of these two possible perspectives. My perspective alone in wanting all the money in the bank versus the perspective of pretty much everyone else who says, no, we can't continue to function if every time there's a bank, Corey just gets to have all of the money in it. That's not going to work. That's not a way that we can move forward. But as we move ahead, we're going to find this presumption operating at a, at a much more basic level as well, and one that's going to have very significant consequences uh, to everything from our day-to-day -day lives all the way over to the, uh, to the scope and progress of world history. But, you know, I, I digress. We will be getting to that. For the time being, a slightly different scenario. Let's go back to, uh, okay, so you called me a jerk. Now, what if instead of standing on the street when you called me a jerk, you're standing on my porch? Well, maybe that's a little different, right? And maybe now I do have some very significant reasons by which I can begin to uh, compel you to stop doing this kind of behavior. Of course, in this case, the reason, the justification that I have for compelling you to behave differently isn't even anymore so much because of any specific action that you've taken. It's actually because you're standing on my property. At that point, all bets are off. All of the, 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 the equation of rights has now radically changed. And it's, you know, it's my property. And thus, I have a much higher uh, ability to say what goes, what works, what doesn't in terms of your behavior or our behavior to one another. Now, this, of course, points us to a slightly different equivalency. Harm, in this case, is not really about harm at all. It's about rights. Again, in this case, it's about property rights. In, in which case, by the way, you could be standing on my porch calling me a really swell guy. And if I choose to view it this way, you could still be infringing on my rights. Or, hey, I could call you a jerk. Uh, not that I would ever sink to, uh, you know, name calling, despite the way that you have been comporting yourself through this entire exchange. But, you know, in theory, purely in theory, a uh, 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 congenial fellow that I am, I could theoretically call you a jerk on my porch and not only do so with impunity, but I could then call the police on you. Now, of course, Legal rights are often a very different question than philosophical right and wrong, as, of course, you might imagine. Even if a similar mechanism is, you know, in a sense, at work in the background, you know, both are attempting to arrive at principles that are as near to universally applicable as possible, which, of course, means uh, both trying not to get needlessly specific, you know, so, for example... Neither philosophy nor law wants to formulate virtuous behavior as that which is 
rational, that which causes no harm, and that which is committed by someone wearing a blue shirt on a Tuesday at 3.14 in the afternoon. That last part is way too specific, and whenever we get that specific, we know we're going to put ourselves into some kind of problematic situation. Alternately, of course, a principle cannot be so general as to be indistinct. You know, to wit, uh, neither in law nor in philosophy can you say that all actions are right that do not cause harm, and all actions are wrong that do. That's a great idea, and we may be sort of compelled to want to stand behind it, but yeah, I, I think we can see it, it can't possibly stand on its own. Uh, it's, it's desperately inexact in any event. The problem is rights overlap, right? As do our prospective priorities of want and harm. You know, note, however, again, that the elevation of the conversation from harm to rights and thus uh, from sort of a descriptions of behavior to a more formal set of legal considerations, that introduces yet another rational system, just like we were talking about before. This is yet another uh, set of rational ideas that we bring to bear uh, on these questions to try and make them make more sense and to try the, to have them be as universal as possible. You know, not, and I want to be clear on this, this is not to say that law is always rational, either in formulation or in application. But I think we can agree it's built on this, you know, very often imperfect foundation of the human faculty of reason. So I guess I, maybe the best thing to do is to create kind of a, a distinction at this point in time. Uh, we can say on the one hand, something like capital R reason, big R reason, that can refer to ideas that, you know, even if they're wrong, that capital R reason can, I can refer to ideas that have been rigorously, logically thought through for objective, rational consistency. You know, take, I think, therefore I am. A lot of thought has gone into the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Again, you don't have to agree with it, but Descartes very extensively shows us his logic behind this idea. He proves it's not just kind of an off-the-cuff impulse statement, um, not made on a whim. Now, by contrast to the, all those capital R, large R rational considerations, small R rational, by contrast, just means it's, it's derived basically from a rational system without necessarily having been rigorously rationally or logically considered at every turn and in every case. So that means that by this definition, Every human legal system in history is a small r rational system. You can't possibly have a legal system without, you know, considerable rational effort having been applied to creating it and without even more rational effort being applied to uh, putting it into effect. But that certainly does not suggest that all of the proceedings and outcomes of all of the uh, human legal systems in all of human history is therefore somehow, you know, rigorously rational, having been considered on the, on the level of a philosophical axiom. Human reason can be used to create everything from a, a tautology to an absurdity, uh, you know, and of course everything in between. But small r rational system, 
These are the ones that which the human faculty for reason was simply needed to create to create the system. It doesn't mean that the resulting system itself is perfectly rational. It doesn't mean that the results of the system are perfectly rational. It doesn't mean that you need, you know, rigorous logical rationality to participate in it. It just means that that we are using this faculty almost, you can almost make it as simple as saying, because we're using the faculties of human language and some notion of causality, meaning one thing causes another and is therefore related to it, and another thing causes another, and, and therefore we see the relationship between all of these things. Um, just because that is the case, therefore we say something is quote unquote, small r rational. You know, put this in an entirely different way. Uh, say, just because I used a, um, a ruler to measure a cut in the board does not, of course, mean that either the measurement or the cut were either accurate or straight. In any event, we're going to continue with all of that uh, next time as we continue to work through Mill's quote. And no, by the way, no, having now come to the end of our first episode on this, no, we have not yet come to the end of the one quote that I want us to consider, this one paragraph with which he starts this essay. Um, but we're going to continue with this. We're going to start, we're going to continue rather to, to start road testing these ideas in different scenarios, seeing what they look like, seeing what makes sense, seeing what doesn't. And as we go... We're going to continue to see how these various activities of personal and communal, communal rationality or lack of rationality, we're going to continue to see how those activities do and do not live up to the ideal that Mill is trying to describe in this, in this paragraph. And I hope we're also going to begin to see how this, um, should I call it this, this redescription that I've put forward, this notion that reason is kind of the, the common theme that unites all of these ideas that, that is linking up all these different aspects of what we've talked about. To some extent, this human faculty of reason is really what puts all of these things in relation to one another, puts all of these things in, into some kind of sensible context and makes them make sense as we consider it. And further on the, that same point, we're going to see how the rebranding of these legal and judicial systems that surround us, how rebranding those as quote unquote rational systems, even small r rational systems, as, I, as I've said, we're going to see how thinking in those terms, thinking of these systems as quote unquote rational systems, that kind of puts them in the context that enmeshes them with a very particular European tradition of thinking, of inquiry, and of understanding. And we're going to see how putting these ideas in that context begins to shed a very different light on how we might be considering all of these systems and all of these philosophical problems and conundrums and, and, and considerations that result from them. But. Until then, I thank you very much for joining me uh, as ever today. It is absolutely fantastic to be back, and I certainly will talk to you next time. I'm looking forward to it.